Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Application approved. The UK becomes the first Western nation to clear a COVID vaccine. BioNTech's breakthrough, we speak exclusively to the CEO who developed it and going global. An exclusive look at how China intends to ship their vaccine around the world. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to be back with you on what we're calling V-Day in the UK. The UK, the first Western nation, as I mentioned, to greenlight a COVID vaccine. The Pfizer-BioNTech version specifically. Britain seemingly going from Brexit to the makings of a pandemic Vexit. Yes, that's what we'll call it. The US is also not far behind with vaccine shipments possible within weeks. We'll also get an exclusive look inside China's operations, too, for global distribution of their vaccine. As I mentioned, that's coming up later in the show. Vaccine news, of course, has been a weekly catalyst for global stock market rallies. Although, as you can see right now, it's a picture of consolidation around the world, specifically in the United States. The S&P and the Nasdaq set to fall from record highs. A mixed day two for Europe and Asia, bucking the trend, though, bringing it back to some of those big pharma and vaccine developers and manufacturers, Pfizer and BioNTech, both rallying pre-market, as you can see on the UK news. Moderna pulling back. It filed for EU emergency use authorization and the United States, of course, for its vaccine earlier this week. Merck also announcing today that it's selling its stake in the firm too. Bit of profit taking going on there, clearly. So that is the science and how we see it today. Now we need to talk about the stimulus. A flurry of emergency aid measures are under discussion on Capitol Hill. And of course, the stakes couldn't be higher. An estimated 12 million Americans will lose pandemic-related assistance in just over three weeks if lawmakers don't do something to pass more relief soon. President-elect Biden urging quick action from Congress, but says that's just the start. He'll push for massive new aid once in office. But as you guys realize, and we talk often, whether it's then or now, a deal requires compromise in Congress. More stimulus chat later on in the show. But for now, we're going to bring it back to the science. The UK medical regulator approving the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for use and the government will begin distribution next week. CNN just had an exclusive interview with the CEO of BioNTech in Germany. Take a listen. How big a step is this for you and general towards beating the pandemic? Yeah, thank you very much. This is really, of course, a very important milestone. So it will be the first time that people outside of clinical trials will get access to our vaccine. And we believe that it is really the start of the end of the pandemic if we can can ensure now a broad rollout of our vaccine. Of course, it's the first country uh, uh, to, uh, to enable an authorization and others will probably follow. Yeah, but it's a good start. 
how fast are things going to go now, now from this approval to people actually getting the vaccine, first in the UK, but then, of course, also in other places as well? Yeah, so we are at the moment uh, in, in, uh, in the process of preparing additional documents and dealing with logistics. So if everything goes well, I uh, expect that first people could get the first vaccinations beginning next week. Beginning next week in the UK at the same time, you're also, uh, you believe, and almost everyone believes, very close to getting approval, emergency use authorization from the FDA. When do you think that's going to be the case? How soon do you think that? Yeah, so we are in, in close interaction with the FDA and addressing their questions, providing additional data. The next important meeting will be on December 10, the WERPAC meeting. And after the WERPAC meeting, depending on the outcome of this meeting, it could be very fast. So, so it could happen that, that the days after the WERPAC meeting, we, we might get uh, the authorization. And, and if we get the authorization, we would be able to, to start delivery of the vaccine very fast. How fast is very fast? Because a lot of people in America, of course, also are asking, yeah. how soon will they be able to get the vaccine? How much have you already produced, for instance? So we have we have already produced uh, uh, a lot of doses uh, in the last last weeks. This doses, this uh, vaccine doses are now going to be released uh, with certificates, with quality con uh, uh, certificates. We already uh, uh, um, uh, mentioned that we will deliver up to 50 million doses uh, to the different different regions uh, in 2020. So that means a significant proportion of these doses would also go to the United States. Of course, it depend uh, depend on when we uh, would be able to start uh, the the rollout. So technically, we are prepared to 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 start the rollout. It depends, of course, on the regulatory approval. One of the things that we've been hearing over the past couple of weeks is the logistics, specifically of your vaccine, having to mm -hmm. be stored at a around minus 100 um, Fahrenheit. Uh, There's some who have called it a logistical nightmare. Um, how do you plan to mitigate that in the future? Yeah, so, so this, is, this is the early phase of pandemic supply. And of course, the early phase of pandemic supply is a lo logistical challenge for all of us. It's not only the storage of the, of the and transportation of the vaccine, but also really getting the people to the right place at the right time and ensuring that they, they, that they can come back for the second vaccination. We are in the moment working in, in, uh, in, uh, in analyzing other transportation temperatures, including minus 20. We are evaluating whether the vaccine is stable at two to eight degrees for a longer time. And what we also do is we are working already on a second generation of, of, uh, of formulation, which could which might allow us even transportation at room temperature. We will see that this, this, will, this work will progress. When would that second generation be, uh, be available? So first of all, what is important is that in the next few months, we will get additional data supporting us the transportation of the vaccine in a, in at, for example, at minus 20. So that's the first change. Yeah? And the second generation will be available most likely in the second half of 2021. When, and this is the, the final question, when do you think that this will all have such an effect that we will begin to see the end of the pandemic and life will be going back to normal? Yeah, it is important. So every individual who receives the vaccine uh, will, will most likely have a benefit. We have, uh, we have 
demonstrated for our vaccine 95% uh, protection from disease. And so it will be a benefit for everyone getting this vaccine, including those who, ha who are at risk to have a severe disease. To ensure that we are able to, to, to stop this pandemic, we need to reach a high vaccination rate. And, and experts expert, uh, give different numbers. 60 to 70 percent is a, is a number, a proportion of people having, having an immune response, which could uh, enable stopping of the vaccine. And I, I believe, I personally believe, with, with a number of companies now, now reaching, reaching, reaching the uh, uh, approval in the next few months, we might be able to deliver sufficient number of doses uh, until end of summer 2021 uh, uh, to reach the 70 to, uh, 60 to 70 percent uh, coverage, which could give us uh, the relief to have a normal winter in 2021. Ur thank you very much for speaking with us. So that was our Fred Plank in there and the CEO of BioNTech, an exclusive interview. A couple of things I just want to pull out from that. The fact that they are not only having approval in the UK for use of this vaccine now, and it's going to come very quickly, obviously the discussions with the US regulators too, but the fact that they're investigating transporting this vaccine at higher temperatures, so not the minus 70 degrees C that we're dealing with at this moment, but potentially higher at minus 20 degrees. That would be more in line with the Moderna vaccine. Also that they're working on the second generation of formulations that could perhaps be transported at room temperature. And we could see them as early as the second half of next year. Fascinating interview there. All right, let's talk about what's going on in the UK, though. Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. Salma, apologies for the name stumble there. Great to have you with us. Just walk us through what the UK regulators said today and who gets what when. What do we know? Well, Julia, the first thing they wanted to do is to reassure the public, because obviously this is a very big day, super exciting news, an extraordinary moment, and you have to get everyone on board. So they came out and said, please be aware that this vaccine is efficient, it is safe, and that no corners have been cut. That was the thing that we heard from them today. The other thing that we're hearing is, of course, guidance from the uh, to the government, rather, as to who should get it first. So here's the plan that we expect so far. We already know that that vaccine, which is in Belgium, is on the way here to the UK. It should arrive early next week. There will be 800,000 doses in that initial batch, according to the health secretary. That's enough for half as many people, because, of course, you have to dose people twice in that course of 21 days. So half as many people, the government guidance is that the first people who should get the vaccine should be those who are in care homes, the most vulnerable, the elderly, and those who take care of them. And then after that, next, the guidance is, of course, healthcare workers and those over 80. So extremely exciting news. So much elation here on the streets of London. I can tell you I've been speaking to people all, all day. And one woman just broke down in tears when I asked her her reaction. She said, I've lost people close to me. And finally, I can see an end in sight. So, so much preparation for these next steps and these next moments, but a lot of excitement as well, Julie. Absolutely. Such an important day. I was getting goosebumps as you were you were saying that, Salma. Thank you so much for that update there. Exciting and momentous times. Thank you. Now, a short time ago in Parliament, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson welcomed the vaccine rollout news. Listen in. Mr Speaker, I know that the whole House will want to join me in welcoming the fantastic news that the MHRA has formally authorised the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. The vaccine will begin to be made available across the UK from next week. 
I would like to pay tribute to and to thank all those who have made this possible. It is the protection of vaccines that will ultimately allow us to reclaim our lives and get our economy moving again. And Max Foster joins us now from Downing Street. Max, a huge moment for the UK, but personally a huge moment for Boris Johnson, who's come under clearly fierce criticism over his handling of the COVID crisis itself. A very important day. A big day. Um, He's also got so many challenges lining up. Of course, this vaccine needs to get here from Belgium. It hasn't been done before. Uh, So will the logistics work? Has he set up the right systems in terms of transport? Has he set up the right systems in the hospitals? Initially, these vaccines will go to the hospitals and then later on they'll go to general practitioners, surgeries and presumably care homes and places like that. But the system needs to work without major hiccups. Uh, The other big issue is, of course, that we've just come out of a national lockdown into regional lockdowns, many of which are stricter than the current ones. So he's encouraging people to remember the tiering system that we're now in, not to relax too much, because if we relax too much, we'll have this massive spike and uh, we don't expect everyone to be fully vaccinated if all goes to plan until the spring. So there's a lot that could go wrong before everyone's vaccinated, Julia. Yeah, there's so many challenges ahead here. I just wonder, Max, to what extent has Brexit and the timing of Brexit actually helped facilitate the timing of this decision too, rather than having to wait for broader EU approval? Well, I'm glad you asked about Brexit because it's not been a big topic today and it probably Mm. should be. Uh, I know that you on your show have reported a lot about all of the logistical challenges which will follow any trade deal or not, or the paperwork. The government seems very clear that there will be no disruption to the supply system of this vaccine to the UK after after December into January. But how can they actually promise that when so many different forms of businesses are warning that they're going to have a big backlog and a massive problem with paperwork? The other way uh, this uh, Brexit issue has played into the regulatory process is that normally... British regulation would have to go to uh, Europe to be approved. But the language you've been hearing today, which has been confusing some people about this is emergency legislation, was basically something that was put into place by the British government to allow the British regulator to have final approval on this drug and not have to go to Europe. So Mm. Brexit, as ever, playing into everything that we do in this country. But there's some hope out there, at least this time, um, Julia, with the vaccine. Yeah, it's nice to have some good news quite frankly, where this pandemic is concerned and notwithstanding all the challenges ahead. Uh, we'll focus on the positives today and this is great news for, um, for the Brits. Max Foster, great to have you with us. All right, here are some other stories making headlines around the world. The US has set another bleak record in the coronavirus pandemic. Nearly 99,000 people now hospitalised with the virus according to the COVID tracking project. The U.S. also reported nearly 2,600 deaths on Tuesday alone. That's the second deadliest day since the pandemic began. Sources telling CNN President Trump has been privately discussing preemptive pardons for those who are close to him before he leaves office. The list includes his adult children, his son-in-law Jared Kushner and his personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani. So far, no comment from the White House. Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong is vowing to continue the fight for democracy after he and two other prominent activists were sentenced to prison on Wednesday. CNN's Chrissy Lustout has all the details. 
24-year-old pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong has been sentenced to 13 and a half months in prison a week after he pleaded guilty to organizing and inciting an unauthorized assembly outside Hong Kong police headquarters in June of last year. Of his fellow activists Ivan Lam and Agnes Chow pleaded guilty to similar charges. 23-year-old Chow has been sentenced to 10 months in prison. 26-year-old Lam has been sentenced to seven months. Uh, during the court hearing, the magistrate said that Joshua Wong challenged the authority of the Hong Kong police by staging an unauthorized assembly outside police headquarters. She also criticized Wong for being, quote, very selfish because police had to waste resources to respond to the gathering. As she read out the sentencing, Wong and Lam, they looked out at their supporters inside the courtroom while Chow kept her head down. After the sentencing, Joshua Wong delivered a message via his lawyers on Twitter. He said that it is not the end of the fight and added that he will serve his prison sentence along other brave protesters. He also asked Hong Kongers to continue to support each other. This case is not related to the national security law, but it is another critical moment for Hong Kong in this era of increasing Chinese control. Last month, all the remaining opposition lawmakers resigned en masse to protest the disqualification of four fellow lawmakers after a resolution was passed by Beijing. Opposition voices are being challenged in an unprecedented way, including these three young activists. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, so to come on first move as the UK clears a COVID-19 vaccine for use, a former FDA commissioner says we need to keep monitoring even after authorization of these vaccines. He gives his take after the break. And cryptocurrency regulation, the US needs to get it right or risk losing out to China. So says the CEO of payment giants Ripple. He joins us later this hour. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move on another red letter day for global science. The UK greenlighting the COVID vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. BioNTech says shipments will begin within days. Wall Street clearly watching, though. I have to say we're a little softer pre-market. Lots of good vaccine news has already been priced into these stock markets and the shares already. Barclays, though, remains a believer in U.S. stocks, seeing a S&P hitting 4,000 next year. That's a rise of some 9% from recent levels. It's counting on a strong economic rebound and easing trade tensions. That said, there's always a caveat. America could still play trade hardball with China for some time to come. President-elect Biden telling The New York Times he won't remove President Trump's tariffs on Beijing right away as he crafts a, quote, coherent China strategy with allies. All right, we return to today's top story once again, the approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine by the UK regulator. BioNTech says it expects US and EU authorization to follow by the middle of this month. The FDA meets to discuss the vaccine on December 10th. Joining us now is Dr. Mark McLennan. He's former FDA commissioner. Dr. McLennan, fantastic to have you on the show. I appreciate US regulators and UK regulators on these things work differently, different timetables, different criteria. But I just want to get your uh, your opinion, your view on the uh, the authorization today. 
Well, Julie, it's a very important step. We'll make a difference in England, obviously, which has also been pretty hard hit, especially recently by the virus. Uh, the U.S. is a, a little bit behind. All eyes are on the FDA, but the FDA also has an independent advisory committee that has a public meeting. Uh, the FDA has a, a somewhat different and more intensive process for looking at the safety data. I think uh, everything looks on track, as you said a few minutes ago, for uh, approval in the U.S., but very important for this safety checks and this additional regulatory process to happen for the public to have confidence and for us to get uh, vaccines widely taken up by Americans, by people all over the world. Yeah, you've pointed to it there. And I can't help but notice that the United Kingdom will be administering this vaccine perhaps even before the FDA is meeting to discuss it next week, never mind giving the authorization and we start to see it distributed and and used in the United States. President Trump accused the FDA of of dragging their feet. Do you see any evidence of that in what you're saying or or what you're seeing? or, Or do you just think this is a case of different ways of going about approving vaccines and greater levels of skepticism well, the in the United fought, States? Yeah. Yeah, the FDA is following a process that it laid out early on in public guidance that it's reinforced along the way. As you point out, it is a little bit different than in England. Uh, England doesn't have this uh, extra step with a public review by an independent advisory committee with the transparency and and a public discussion that go along with that. Uh, But I do have a lot of confidence in the FDA process. And remember, Julie, it's not just a matter of having an emergency approval. It's a matter of getting uh, the public to be willing to take the vaccine. It's a matter of distributing a vaccine that requires very special conditions. Uh, It's a matter of getting people to follow through with two doses. So that's really where the hard work is going to be. These few days, I think in the big picture, uh, we are getting vaccines way, way faster than has ever been done before. And the most important thing is going to be getting these out into effective use in the broader public. Yes. Speed is one thing. Trust and getting people to take this is an entirely different thing. You wrote an op-ed, and this was initially why I wanted to get you on the show, just saying, look, the data collection does not stop here. There are still so many questions that we need to ask, and we're not going to know the answers to many of those for several months, in certain cases over a year, perhaps two years. Just talk us through that and the importance of collecting data and gaining more information about what we're doing here. Yeah, the the emergency approvals we're seeing now are just that. They don't come with the usual long-term collection, especially on data on safety. We know the vaccines, uh, we have very good evidence that the vaccines are, are very effective, but they're going to be used by millions of people, uh, maybe billions of people around the world. So we want to make sure they're safe too. And what the post-market data collection will allow is answering questions like, are there rare side effects that we should account for and making sure we get the most benefits out of the vaccines? Do the vaccines have immunity effects that last for a long time, not just a a few months? And also, do people who take the vaccines, we know they're going to be less likely, much less likely to get consequences from COVID themselves, but they also have less transmission of the virus to other people. Remember, a lot of virus transmission is asymptomatic. So you can have a very, very mild case, but still cause contagion to others. Those are the kinds of questions, Julie, that we need more evidence to address, and that's going to come after these emergency approvals. 
One of the things that leapt out in your op-ed to me was your discussion of mucosal immunity. And and you pointed to the preliminary evidence that we've seen where immune cells in the respiratory tract can help reduce the chance of of the spreading of the virus in any case. And of course, if you've got regions of, of countries where you have a high vaccination rate, low viral spread, it seems perhaps you could reduce the mitigation efforts. How long, because this to me seems something very critical, how long before we can perhaps pull enough data together where we go, okay, we're confident this is what we're seeing now and we can relax some of those mitigation efforts? Yeah, great question, Julie. I think if we do the studies right, it's a matter of weeks to months after the initial approvals. It does look like uh, there is some possibility of this mucosal immunity, which again basically means uh, you not only aren't going to have serious consequences from COVID, you may not even really get infected, so you don't transmit the virus to others. Until then, though, it's very important for people to remember uh, that it takes some time for the vaccines to have their effects, and we really need to pay attention to masks and distancing and all the things that are so important right now when we're facing surges in so many parts of the world. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. The other thing that you questioned, and for me this leapt out as well, is just tracking who's had the vaccine, who's come back for their second dose or not come back for their second dose. I mean, when you've got, if we take America as an example, and there are other huge nations, particularly relative to smaller ones like the UK, just keeping track of that scale of information is going to be tough. How is that going to happen? Are we on top of that? Well, it's very important for every country to have a a, uh, information technology system that can track not only when people got the first vaccine so that we can make sure and help them make sure they get the second vaccine on time, the second dose on time. Otherwise, it is not going to be nearly as effective as shown in the studies. But remember, we're likely to have multiple vaccines available soon. So uh, if people get one vaccine first dose, we need to make sure they get the second vaccine for the next dose. Uh, In the United States, this is a complex process because we have lots of states, lots of different information systems. That's going to be an issue, I think, in Britain as well, making sure we can put together all of these data appropriately. And those data are also the basis for doing some more of these studies to see how people do. Do the vaccines work as well in practice as it looks like they do in the trials? Does immunity last for a long time? All those kinds of questions we were just talking about. Uh, Dr. McLennan, is it right that we're giving people this vaccine so quickly? Do, Do the benefits outweigh all the questions that you and I have just discussed, all the logistical issues potentially, all the data analytics that we need to have in in play. Is it right to give this vaccine right now? Yeah. Remember, we're starting with people, Julie, who are at the very highest risk in uh, the United States, like in England. It's likely to be healthcare workers and people in Um, nursing homes and uh, community living facilities where there have been so many uh, hospitalizations and deaths as a result of the pandemic. So those are people who are going to get a lot of benefit themselves from being protected from the serious consequences of COVID. With collecting more data as we get experience in these highest risk individuals, we'll have more confidence about just how safe the vaccine is in people who are lower risk, people uh, who don't have so much risk of exposure people who are not as old and who are less likely to have complications. That's why this is an emergency use authorization first in the highest risk individuals and why it is, again, so important to get more data, more evidence on how well the vaccines are working and especially uh, whether there are any rare side effects. 
That's why communication is so key as well. Dr. Mark yeah. McClellan, great to have you with us. Thank you so much um, for joining us on the show today. We'll get you back soon. The former FDA Good to be with commissioner you. there. Thank you. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. And as expected, we're seeing a bit of a pullback in early trading. There you can see it. The S&P and the Nasdaq easing from the records set yesterday. The Dow hovering below that 30,000 milestone that it hit last week. Like so many of us, the Dow appears to be a little conflicted after hitting 30-something. Barely. Who wrote that? I didn't write that. How dare they? <laughs> OK, the long term prospects for the global economy are looking more encouraging now that vaccines are well and truly out the door. U.S. Treasury yields are closing in on one month highs on hopes for stronger U.S. growth. But of course, short term pressures remain. Numbers out today show private sector jobs growth coming in. It's still positive, but a weaker than expected 307,000 jobs last month. That's ahead of the all important payrolls numbers this Friday. President-elect Biden's Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen warning of a bleak winter ahead for the United States without new emergency aid. The pandemic and economic fallout that together have caused so much damage for so many and have had a disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable among us. It's an American tragedy and it's essential that we move with urgency. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we've been saying it's a tragedy for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it's almost as if Congress just woke up to the fact. I can see three sort of plans forming and three total long shots. Yeah, and it's unclear whether all of this newfound drama in D.C. over the cliff that Americans face, and it is a cliff that Mm. the Americans face in just the the matter of coming days, it it remains to be seen if they can get something done. They really have drawn their battle lines here, haven't they? When you look at these three different plans, you know, Mitch McConnell, um, the the Senate Majority Leader, he's got a plan that is narrower than what Democrats have wanted. It's got elements that Democrats have rejected before and is much smaller in scope than another plan, a bipartisan sort of compromise plan that's $908 billion. But in that kind of opening to compromise for state and local funding in that uh, in that other bipartisan plan, that may be uh, that may be a no go, a non-starter for uh, both the president and for um, for Mitch McConnell. So there there's new conversations happening. But, Julia, it's the same thing that you and I have been dissecting for weeks now. I mean, the House passed its its new its new coronavirus relief way back in May. So they've had till May to get to this cliff and and try to help Americans and they just had not been able to get there yet. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I read uh, an incredibly comprehensive compilation uh, actually over the weekend from the Century Foundation that said there's going to be 12 million Americans yeah. who are getting payments or benefits as a result of some of the specific pandemic related programs that will lose those benefits come December 26. So this is not the people that had the bump up in benefits that lost the money, the extra money in July. This is people who are probably existing on this money that will lose them. These are gig workers, right? Yeah. Still, Congress can't agree. 
Now, and it's interesting because Mitch McConnell, in, in, in the breakdown, and our Lauren Fox has a fantastic write-up on, on CNN.com if anybody wants to really dive into these three plans and sort of how the long shot status of all of them. But in that plan, um, there is an extension of a month for jobless benefits for those people on the gig, uh, gig workers and another extension for unemployment benefits from some of the other uh, state programs. Um, there's liability protections. That's something that Mitch McConnell has wanted from, from the beginning. There's more small business aid. There's also some funding for testing and vaccines and 100 $105 billion for school funding. And in there as well, there's a discussion about um, allowing states more time to use the aid they've already been awarded. So you can see he's maybe trying to breach that gap that he has with, uh, with Democrats who want more money for state and local funding. I, I was listening to some hearings yesterday with, with Stephen Mnuchin and and the Fed chief, Jay Powell, uh, to the Senate. And I think it was John Tester from Montana who had a really interesting point about this, this argument over the state and local funding. He says for people to, you know, blast states and localities for needing money from the federal government um, because they should, have been, they should have been taking care of their finances better before the crisis struck, he pointed out that the U.S. federal government has had trillion-dollar deficits during the best economy in years, that they are, were taking that own advice, that advice themselves. And this is a corona coronavirus pandemic. You're talking about firefighters, teachers, public workers who face some real hardship if we don't figure out how to stabilize uh, stabilize those revenues for states and local governments. Yeah. Compromise. There's no excuse not to compromise. They just yeah. have to find it. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Nice to see you. Coming up next, new president, new approach. The CEO of payments giant Ripple on the future regulation of the sector, the crypto boom, and what's driving that demand? Stay with us. That's next. Crypto fans have been reminding us of a headline from 2018, which reads, most cryptocurrencies will crash to zero, Goldman Sachs says. This was a note to investors warning about the risks that several, if not most, cryptocurrencies will fail. And just look at this over the last 12 months and what a rally there's been for these big three. XRP enjoying gains of 186%. Bitcoin and Ethereum or Ether also showing huge gains, as you can see. Now, XRP is the digital currency or asset that facilitates payments on the payment platform Ripple, which provides fast and cheap international transactions worldwide. The network is used by payment providers like banks and money services businesses. And I'm excited to say Brad Garlinghouse is Ripple. CEO, and he joins us now. Brad, fantastic always to have you on the show. I have to say this year has been interesting. The rise of digital payments anyway due to COVID, some big investors throwing the towel in and saying, fine, I was a skeptic. I've changed my mind. Square, PayPal getting involved. What's driving the gains this year in your mind? Well, first of all, Julia, thank you for having me back. Uh, it has definitely been an exciting year across crypto I think one of the most macro important dynamics that is driving the crypto markets is the fact that many governments around the world are printing more fiat currencies. Here in the United States, you see you know, trillions of dollars of stimulus, and that means that we're inflating the US dollar. And when you inflate the US dollar, there's many people that want to hold non-inflationary assets. You've seen the same dynamic really with gold and you know, the, the year that gold has had. And so I think people are seeing crypto as in some cases, a inflationary hedge. As you pointed out, you're seeing names like Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller come into crypto and see it as a investable asset. And I think those are important dynamics that are driving this market. 
So you're saying that the, the greater share of the gains that we're seeing are, are being driven by the store of value argument here for, for digital currencies or digital assets, perhaps rather than utility function, which differs depending on which digital currency you're talking about and quite dramatically. Yeah, look, I, I have said for years and I've you know, said uh, with you, uh, I, I violently believe that the long-term value of any digital asset is going to be derived from its utility. I think one utility is store of value, and you're seeing that across Bitcoin. You're seeing that across other cryptocurrencies that don't have an inflationary dynamic. As you introduced in the beginning of the segment, Ripple is using an open-source digital asset XRP to solve a payments problem. And it's extremely good at that because it's extremely fast and extremely cheap on a per transaction basis, particularly at a time when a Biden administration is arriving. And I think things like climate change, things like environmental impact of energy usage will, will increase on the, the importance and the radar. I think there'll be more and more attention on the efficiency and scalability of a technology like XRP in contrast to other technologies that have what we call proof of work or mining which takes a massive amount of power, uh, as you know well, having followed this space. Yeah, I mean, you tweeted about this. You said, hey, if we've got a, a government that's going to be more climate change focused, which clearly uh, President Biden will be, then perhaps people like Square that are investing in uh, Bitcoin need to be, to be aware of this. I will point out, and you've also pointed out that you are a Bitcoin holder. You want all all currencies to succeed here. But again, it goes back, it goes back to the idea of distinguishing between them. Do you see this as the end of perhaps Bitcoin dominance? It is talked about most. It has the largest market share. And particularly when I go back to the chart that I just showed of the rise in, in value over the last 12 months, there is a relative outperformance of, of some of the other digital assets here versus Bitcoin. Is this the moment where we see the beginning of the end of the dominance of Bitcoin? Well, I think Bitcoin is going to remain a very important kind of player within the, the crypto community. It has been and I think will continue to be for so many people. And even as you, as you mentioned, Square and others that when they first get involved with crypto, they start with Bitcoin. And then from there, they expand their, their portfolio. I, I think it's important to have that entry point, to get, getting people comfortable. And so I don't think it'll change dramatically. I think Bitcoin has been, I think will continue to be solving a use case, that utility question around store of value. But as you pointed out, I think they're going to see uh, micro cases or even very large cases. In the, in the case of XRP as a payments tool, particularly the way Ripple uses it for cross-border payments, you're talking about you know, trillions and trillions of dollars that are flowing across border in a, in a system that was really designed and built 50 years ago. I'm sure you personally have had the experience of moving money across borders and it's slow and it's expensive and we can and will enable much uh, more efficient and much cheaper solutions. Yeah, it's the equivalent of uh, steam engine technology and uh, it's not 21st century. We've talked about it on the show before. Um, Talk to me about regulation, because this is what it distills down to, what the future of regulation looks like. You've said, look, we're a, a patriotic U.S. company. We want to remain here. But the regulation here is, to some degree, suppressing innovation. It's restricting your business. And you see others doing better around the world. Where are you on the, on the decision, perhaps, to, to relocate in order to facilitate growing the business? You know, we absolutely want to see the United States lead in this uh, new arena that we call blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And I think we certainly saw that in the age of the Internet 20 plus years ago, that the U.S. had clear regulatory frameworks 
And that allowed it, that allowed investors to come in and make those investments. Today here in the United States, we're actually out of step with some of the other G20 markets around the world, you know, in the UK or in Singapore or in Japan, you have had that regulatory clarity. You know, you asked uh, why Bitcoin has outperformed. And one of the reasons is likely that there is clarity and certainty about Bitcoin's uh, regulatory framework here in the United States. That hasn't been the case with other cryptocurrencies, including XRP. But when you have that certainty, when you have that clarity, if you're an investor or you're a developer using these technologies, you can invest in them and you can build on top of them with clarity and certainty. The, the U.S. has not provided that certainty yet. And it, we have been big advocates of a bill that was introduced in Congress called the DCEA or Digital Commodity Exchange Act. We think it's a very important step in providing that clarity and that certainty here in the U.S. Do you need that clarity before you IPO, Brad? Well, that's a great question. You know, uh, we have not you know, been public about what our plans are to go public, uh, with the exception that I've said, I think there will be public crypto companies. I originally predicted we'd see them in calendar year 2020. I think you, you and did. I may have discussed that. <laughs> we did. Uh, I, I think, you know, the pandemic has affected a lot of things. and I think that has slowed things down a bit. But look, it's very clear there is enthusiasm for real use cases to solve real problems. And when those are scaled problems, I think you're going to see a lot of investor interest in both the crypto markets as well as the public equity markets. What does an ideal regulatory framework look like for, for Ripple and for the digital asset XRP? I just, I just want to give viewers a sense of how it's holding you back. Is it preventing you adding central banks to the platform? Is it preventing customers, particularly international companies, joining the, the payments network too? What specifically is it, is it preventing at this stage? Well, oftentimes when I'm speaking to customers and we're talking to them about our product that uses XRP in the payment flows, they will ask me about the regulatory dynamics. And they, we have had customers say, look, until there's clarity in regulatory frameworks, then we're going to hold off. Now, that has not been the case because of the clarity and the certainty in countries, as I mentioned, like the US, excuse me, like the UK or the UAE or Switzerland. You do have companies in those markets saying, absolutely, we're supportive. Let's move forward. Here in the United States, you know, we actually have about 95 percent of our customers are non-US customers and only about 5 percent are here in the US. And people say, well, why? You know, you're a US company. Why is that? One of the dynamics is we have U.S. companies who are waiting for clarity and the clarity really is emanates from the Securities and Exchange Commission. The, the U.S. SEC said two and a half years ago, almost three, really, that Bitcoin was not a security. And then they came out about two months later and said that Ether is not a security. And then they stopped and instead focused their energy on you know, some of the, the bad actors in the ICO market, the initial coin offering. So for us around XRP and the over 100 companies that are working with XRP, getting that clarity and that certainty, it's, it's very clear to me that XRP is being used by many companies as a currency. You've had the U.S. Department of Justice refer to XRP as a currency. You've had FinCEN refer to it as a currency, but you haven't yet had that clarity from the U.S. SEC. Yeah, it's hugely important. Brad, don't move a muscle because we're going to wrap up the conversation here, but you and I are going to continue to discuss and I'll post the remainder of this interview on social media. So for now, Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple, thank you. And um, check out the rest of this interview on my Twitter page at Julia Chatterley CNN. That's at Julia Chatterley CNN. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come.
Welcome back to First Move. Massive preparations are now underway in China for the global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines once they are approved. CNN has had exclusive access to the infrastructure in southern China and David Culver has this report. You're looking at one of the cargo jets that will soon be taking vaccines that are approved here in China, made by Chinese biotech companies, to the rest of the world. This one is a charter, Ethiopian cargo. It's their pharma wing. Look over here. You can see they're already loading up some of the PPE, some of the face masks, some of the hazmat-like suits. Inside, however, they have built an infrastructure that is temperature and climate controlled. Why does that matter? Well, as soon as the vaccines are approved, they have to be kept at a certain temperature setting. And that is the only way they can be transferred from start here in Shenzhen in southern China to finish. For this aircraft, it continues on to the Middle East. One thing that's important to note is the logo on the side, Tain now. That is a part of Alibaba. It's their logistics and distribution part. Normally they're doing goods that people are buying online. Think of Amazon, but on a massive scale. That is the company that here in China is helping with the distribution of vaccines as soon as they're given the go ahead. We are ready to move the vaccines. Sinel CEO Wan Lin says the company is now adding more routes for greater global reach. We are not still quite sure about uh, the exact demand on that, but we are definitely building our capability to be prepared for that. While China is yet to approve a vaccine for public use, Sinel says their end-to-end climate-controlled infrastructure is in place and ready. The required temperature, which differs depending on the vaccine, must be maintained throughout transport, from leaving the production facility to airport storage, and finally, to global cargo distribution. For example, the uh, Shenzhen Airport Terminal, they have already set up a cold chain warehouse, uh, 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 mainly for the medicine suppliers. CNN got an exclusive look inside that cold chain facility, which will soon store the approved vaccines. Now, these chambers can be specified and even customized based on the required temperature for each vaccine. And they can put them in different chambers within so as to accommodate that. Sinal then works with different airlines to ensure the cargo temperature is sustained throughout the flight. In this case, Ethiopian Airlines. Since the start of the pandemic, they've flown more than 3,000 tons of supplies to Europe, Africa, the Middle East and South America. So we do the same also for the vaccine to distribute to all uh, destinations around the globe and then we can cure a lot of human beings. David Culver reporting there. And that just about wraps up the show. Great to be with you today. We will see you tomorrow. I'm Julia Chastley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe and take care of each other. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 